It is the Tuesday edition of Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650. And as always, presented by your local Grip Auto and Tire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. It is Satyar Shaw with Jamie Dodd, and we have a lot to get to today. Of course, the Edmonton Oilers are out of the postseason. What does that mean for your Vancouver Canucks who have also signed a player to an entry-level contract? Yes, they have added somebody to the organization. We'll talk about that. Of course, Frank Valley joins us, our usual weekly NHL insider. And also, we'll talk to Cam Robinson about the 2022 NHL entry draft and the Canucks picking at 15th overall. But Jamie, what's happened to Matt? How Not too today? much. I'm uh, I'm deep in the hockey DB Niels Amon research <laughs> right now. Re- researching the newest member of the Canucks. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it's one of those things where um, just about. 25, 30 minutes ago, the Canucks announced they had signed the 22-year-old Swedish free agent center, Niels Amund. And, you know, Niels Amund was drafted uh, uh, a couple of years ago by the Colorado Avalanche in the sixth round, but was not signed. And the Canucks, well, they've scooped him up. And it's interesting because you start looking at his profile and... There isn't a ton of offensive pop to his game, at least not from uh, his time in the Swedish Hockey League, but he's considered a guy with some size, with some speed, and plays a smart, mature hockey game. And what we said a lot about this organization, Jamie, they need more centers yeah. as far as the prospects go. Yeah, it checks a couple of boxes for things that... Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford have really emphasized since they arrived in Vancouver. One is speed, right? Which even though he is a bit of a bigger body, the scouting report is that he plays with a lot of speed. And the other one, of course, is just emphasizing kind of restocking the prospect pipeline, or at least adding more depth by going out and signing, you know, NCAA and European free agents. And we saw uh, Archie Baines from the CHL didn't really materialize on the NCAA side, but now a European free agent. So again, you know, Patrick uh, Alvin and Jim Rutherford following through on a lot of those things that they've emphasized over and over and over again. Yeah, and, you know, down the middle, that's where this organization really needs some help. And if 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 Ullman can become even a third, fourth line center with a little bit of speed, can win some draws, play, you know, a two-way game for you, it's not it's nothing super sexy, right? We're not talking about something that's going to really change the fortunes of this organization, but how hard is it to find centers that can yep. play for you? How hard is it to find guys that can do a lot of those different things? And when you look at what the, what the Canucks currently have, and you have Yuho Lamico, who's kind of penciled in as your fourth-line center, I guess it depends on how you view uh, Jason Dickinson and Horvat and Miller and Pedersen and all that sort of stuff. But for the sake of argument, I think we all kind of you know view Yuho Lamico as the baseline fourth-line center for this team. Now it's time to find somebody better long-term. And can can Niels Ullman provide a bit more? I mean, size-wise, he's not quite as big as Yuho Lamico, but he's a better skater. And I think that's the big key here. How much a better skater do you need down the middle in those types of roles? Because you start looking around the league now, look at the teams that are having success. Not a lot of bottom six centers lack speed that yeah. are successful. Yeah, and we saw, I mean, even with Yuho Lamico, when the Canucks had Lamico, Mott, and Highmore playing together, the speed of Mott and Highmore was able to make that a really effective line. And Lamico played his part as well, but he did need that speed uh, to complement, kind of make up for one of the things he doesn't have in his game. And you just think about it, if you add a center into that mix, it also plays with a lot of speed and kind of replicate some of that forechecking ability uh, that those wingers had. Well, then you might really have something interesting as well. And, you know, more than anything as well, whether it's at center, at the, on the wing, at defense, wherever, 
the Canucks are just going to need cheap contributors towards the, in yeah. the bottom half of their roster in the coming years, right? Like, we've talked so much about some of the big contractual decisions they have to make and the fact that some of their key players are going to get more expensive, you know, in the upcoming years potentially. And to counteract that and to counteract some of the inefficient money that's still in the books, you need to have a source of cheap contracts and guys who not just be in the lineup but can help you win but on a relatively cheap salary. Well, and the having guys that are controllable and cheap, that's the big part of it. And also the other part is guys can actually play for you. And we'll see if he actually will down the road. And, you know, the Canucks haven't been able to sign too many of these free agents so far as far as outside of the organization. They added our Steve Baines from uh, the WHL, of course. He's now a Canucks prospect. And, of course, Niels Allman now being a European signing. And and I think we're we're kind of – I wouldn't just say, you know, I believe. I would say it's safe to say the Canucks are going to continue scouring that European free agent market still, Jamie. So I'm, I'm curious to see if this is just kind of the beginning of the Canucks adding a couple more guys from that circuit. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't be surprising. I mean, of course, they're still in the mix on the, the big name European free agent, Andre Kuzmenko, and we'll yeah. see what decision he ultimately makes, but that's certainly someone that they've pursued really heavily, as a lot of other teams have, and yeah, it wouldn't be surprising at all, especially now that the World Championships are over, uh, if we do see some more European free agents join the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, well, the Canucks have added somebody to the prospect staple, and that is Niels Allman, the 22-year-old six-foot-two centerman out of Lexans, Sweden, in the SHL, who's been playing there for a few years. We'll get Cam Robinson's thoughts on Niels Allman and what he might provide for this organization in the future. That's coming up in hour two of Canuck Central here today. Now, uh, before we delve into some of the coaching stuff happening, Bruce Cassidy, as we discussed a little bit yesterday, is now available on the coaching front. But before we we kind of have some fun with the coaching carousel and wonder where these coaches may land in the six possible destinations that are open for head coaches in the National Hockey League. Let's spend a moment here on what happened last night on the Edmonton Oilers being out of the postseason. And, you know, maybe a bit later we'll, we'll actually talk about the series and where that team might be trending in that way. But when we not look at that Edmonton Oilers team and their cap situation and what they have to do this offseason and you compare it to where the Vancouver Canucks stand today – how big of a gap is there between the Canucks and the Edmonton Oilers? And, and hey, we all know the biggest gap exists between your best players because mm-hmm. they have McDavid and Dreisaitl. But outside of that, are these rosters comparable? I think Edmonton, like if you were to rank kind of the Pacific Division or even just look at Edmonton and the Canucks right now and try to figure out which team is going to be better next year, I think you would probably have to put Edmonton above the Canucks just because of Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. But it wouldn't shock me at all, based on how the off-seasons play out for both teams, based on some of the talent that Vancouver has, if they end up finishing above, right? Like, I would have Edmonton above the Canucks, but it's not a massive gap. It's not a gap that you can't possibly imagine uh, the Canucks overcoming this summer and finishing above Edmonton, because as as much as they do have, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl, and that means they'll never really be terrible, there are so many other questions on that roster, but it's not exactly impossible to imagine them you know, having a bit of a down year, right? Or, or some things going wrong that drops them a little bit farther down the standings. Well, I still see them, of course, being a playoff team as long as you have McDavid yeah. and Dreisaitl. And I think what they showed more than anything, and especially McDavid and Dreisaitl, obviously, being able to go supernova the way they did in the postseason, and that's going to give you a massive advantage. But in the regular season, the game is different. You can't play at that level 82 games. You can't just will your team into victory every single night. So that's going to kind of, you know, obviously put a dent into their roster as far as 
maybe being as good point-wise as last season, but they're still a team that I would be terrified of playing in the postseason because of McDavid and Dreisaitl. But if I look at their top six, McDavid and Dreisaitl down the middle, you have Hyman, you have Nugent Hopkins, you have Kaler Yamamoto, and Jesse Puglia-Yarvi. That's your top six. How do those wingers compare to put Colson, Garland, Miller, and Besser? Yeah, you'd probably rather have the Canucks, right? I mean, you just if you, if JT Miller is still going to be a part of that group, right? And yeah. he he was one of the the top producing players in the NHL last year. Maybe doesn't quite get to that level again, but he's by far the best player of those. You know, the wingers you mentioned on both sides there. And you look at what Vasily Podkolzin, like Connor Garland. We know about the the five on five production he's able to have. Vasily Podkolzin, the way he played towards the end of the season, if he's able to sustain something close to that. He should be a very valuable player as well. That is the Canucks' strongest position, really, is their, the depth they have on the wing in their top six. And I think at that position, they match up pretty favorably with the Oilers. They do. I mean, even if you start looking at, you know, the, the third line, for instance, and a lot of that hinges on where Niels Hoaglander goes next year and what he's able to do. But even Tanner Pearson, I mean, you know, obviously, even if he's your third line guy, that, that's a capable center now, mm-hmm. a capable winger. And we can talk about the salary and, and all that sort of stuff. But as far as what he can provide. So I look at the forward group and, you know, Cassie and, uh, and Derek Ryan and Fogel, Warren Fogel, that's your next three forwards, I'd guess. And Dylan Holloway, I suppose, depending on where he may trend next season. You got Pearson, Dickinson, Hoaglander. That's kind of the next group there for Vancouver. And yeah, you, you probably think a guy like Fogel, um, can provide a bit more, but he's a guy, a guy coming off a 12 goal season, right? Yeah. And he's a guy that they trade a lot for that hasn't been able to come through. So I think the forwards aren't too different. The defense is where I think it's really interesting, especially depending on what Duncan Keith ends up doing. So they have Keith and Bouchard, Nurse and CeCe, Broberg and Barry. The Canucks have Hughes and Shen, OEL Myers, Rathbone and Pullman. It's close. I think I might lean towards the Canucks group there, just because I like Quinn Hughes better than any of the defensemen on the Oilers, right? And so if you get the best player in the bunch, I think that that tilts it towards the Canucks for me. Yeah, I think the defense, uh, especially, I mean, it it hinges on Jack Rathbone, too, next season, what he might end up doing in that third pair. But at the very, I mean, similar situation for Edmonton with a guy like Philip Broberg, if he's going to be playing on that team. And, hey, listen, the blue lines may be different, but it's just kind of looking at it on paper as it stands today. And I think it is pretty comparable. For me, it comes down to two things. Goaltending, huge advantage for Vancouver. What do, does Edmonton do? Do they upgrade on Mike Smith at some point? And what does that, you know, kind of matchup look like for you? The two, that's the, the advantage Vancouver has is goaltending in a massive way. The massive advantage Edmonton has is McDavid and Dreisaitl. That's going to carry your team more than anything else. So my question for next season would be, especially if the Canucks do end up trading a JT Miller, is who's going to be the next superstar? Like, do the Canucks have a second horse behind Pedersen if Pedersen right. can reach that level? And, hey, I'm not saying Pedersen's McDavid. I'm not saying he's Dreisaitl. I'm just saying if he can be a superstar-level player, you kind of need a second one. Who's your second one? Do you have one if you trade Miller? Yeah, Pedersen doesn't need to get to the McDavid-Dreisaitl level, but can he can get to that kind of next tier or, or even a tier below that, right, where he's a legitimate superstar, top-of-the-lineup player for a whole season. We saw it really for the last half of of the most recent season, but can you do it for the full 82 games to kind of bridge that gap a little bit? And it's a really good question about the the second superstar for the Canucks, at least at forward, right? Because you would mm-hmm. think, you know, second superstar on the blue line uh, is Quinn Hughes, and then obviously you have a superstar in net as well in Thatcher Demko, or you certainly hope you will, for the remainder of his, of his contract. None of the other play, assuming JT Miller's not still here, right? Assuming that they ultimately do trade him, 
There's a lot of other guys you really like. I, I really like Connor Garland's game, Bo Horvat, Brock Besser, you know, Vasily Podkolzin. But I don't know if you would say that any of them have superstar upside, right? Outside of JT Miller, who, because of his contractual situation, you know, is definitely a trade candidate. So that, you know, that might be the strongest argument against potentially trading JT Miller is if you think you need two legit superstars up front to truly be competitive, if you move the one that you might have, where are you finding that other one to complement Elias Pettersson? It doesn't exist on the roster as it stands. Now, could it be the pick you have? Is it somebody else you acquire via trade if you're moving a guy like JT? Because I don't think it's good enough to say, okay, you trade JT because you have to, and then we'll figure it out later. You have to, you have to figure out an avenue for you to find another star level player. Like, I don't want this team to be the next Carolina Hurricanes. That's a really good hockey team. But a team that at the very end, at the end of the day, is lacking some of that high-end finishing ability that's going to put that team over the top. And we'll see if they can break through that narrative next year and if that's actually a thing for them or just they've had some issues in the postseason. But it's been a problem now, year after year, for that team. So I'm not even looking at Carolina and saying that's the team you want to aspire to be because I'm not sure they put a premium on that elite-level talent. That's what my biggest question is. No matter what you do, I don't care what you do, just make sure if you're trading JT, you give yourself at least one shot at finding yeah. a real difference-making star. Because that's what you're going to need if you want to go head-to-head with a team like Edmonton at some point. Well, I think the thing is, you just have to you have to hold firm on what JT Miller's trade value should be, right? Yeah. As you said, you can't you, you can't just do it because you're scared of losing him as UFA and take, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. You have to recognize that this is a guy who was what, seventh in scoring in the NHL last year. I think over the last three years, he's 12th in scoring. Guys like that don't hit the trade market all that often, right? And if, mm-hmm. if teams want to be serious about acquiring him, acquiring a player who can move the needle like that, yeah, they have to give you premium assets in return. That's a good way of thinking about it. You need to have at least, whether it's a young player who has superstar upside or a really premium pick that you think you can land a superstar a player with superstar upside with, that has to be part of the mix because that's the quality of asset you'd be trading in JT Miller. And I think, you know, I know there are some people who say, oh, actually, I'd rather the Canucks keep JT Miller and trade Bo Horvat. And I think that same logic applies if you're trading Bo Horvat. Bo Horvat would be extremely in demand if the Canucks mm-hmm. ever decided to seriously explore trading him. So again, you have to hold firm to what your price is, what the price should be, and make sure you get an adequate return. And to be fair, I mean, I think we've seen the Canucks stick to that philosophy so far. I know you've reported a lot, Sat, that at the trade deadline, you know, they were open to making some moves. They just had a very specific value in mind for what yeah. they needed to get back for all of their players. And when it's, when you're talking about a guy like JT Miller, that value has to be very, very high. Well, it absolutely does. And when you look at what this team also needs in the future, it's very clear they need more prospects and more picks. But if you're not moving JT to get that, who are you doing? Who are you moving to get that? Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, JT's price is going to be so high, I'm not sure you can actually sign him and Bo. And if you're signing JT, I'm not sure there is room for Bo. But at the same time, you know, all the reports indicate the Canucks are very much focused on getting a deal done with Bo Horvat. So we'll ultimately see where that goes. As far as who the next center, superstar potential center is behind Pedersen, Wayne on Twitter at Canucks House says, the second superstar under Pedersen will be Connor Bedard. <laughs> so, so some wishful thing. The only way the Canucks can end up getting Connor Bedard is if Thatcher Demko is either 
it, somebody body snatches him <laughs> and Mike Smith's the goalie all of a sudden or something, or um, he gets injured and the Canucks, you know, trade JT and a bunch of other things. I don't know if they're going to be bad enough to get Connor Bedard. The only way you can you can guarantee the only way you guarantee a shot at Connor Bedard is getting a top bottom ten record. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not it, sure they can be that bad. To to be bottom ten, you have to think. I mean, something awful is happening to Thatcher Demko, whether yes. it's a long term injury or just he completely forgets <laughs> how to play the position or or something. Right? Like just trading JT Miller is not in, and adding uh, other things to the roster to fill that spot is not going to push you all the way down to a bottom ten. And even then, if if you're like the eighth or ninth or tenth worst record, your chances of getting Connor Bedard are are so so small. But even to put yourself. In, a, in in that spot to have that small opportunity, again, it, it really all comes down to Thatcher Demko and just something totally brutal would have to happen. Oh, and and, and yeah, I think this is a fair question. This question here on the text inbox says, with Pedersen's defensive game in mind, how many points do you think he will need to get to that superstar level you're talking about? If he's playing at that level, like if he's playing at an elite level defensively as two-way force, which he's able to do, if he's doing that, even if he's scoring 90 points, to me, that's a superstar level. But if you get to 100 points in you're playing at that level, I mean, that's absolutely the next tier to it. People made the Pavel Datsu comparison. You're talking about a Hall of Fame superstar forward. He was a really good two-way player, but he was kind of peaking at a point per game 90 points, generally speaking. So I'd say you have to kind of be at that 90-point range plus be elite defensively for us to consider him a superstar. Yeah, I think we saw it from Elias Pettersson in the last half of the season. You're just looking at it now, in his final 43 games, so just over half the year, he had 51 points, right? So that puts you on, like, what, maybe a 95-point pace, something like that. And then you consider the fact that he was driving really strong results at 5-on-5. He was a part of a much-improved penalty kill for the team, obviously crucial to what they did on the power play. You add up all of those other things beyond points production, and... Yeah, if he comes, if he's at that level, to me, that's a superstar. That's a no doubt about it superstar because you're adding value to your team in every facet of the game. And for me, the kind of benchmark to be truly in that superstar tier for Elias Pettersson, yeah, it's probably like 85 points. If he gets to 85 points next year and does all of those other things I just mentioned, for me, that's a superstar. You'd love to see him, you know, 90, 95, even knocking on the door of 100. But I think because he contributes in all of those other ways, he can be a superstar even just with slightly less production than that. But that's something that has to happen. Like, Patterson is going to have to take that step and be a bona fide superstar. So as much as we're sitting here and talking about, hey, they need the second superstar, and Patterson has to establish himself as one first, and then you have to have a second one behind. But that's ultimately the, the big thing. As much as we're sitting here and talking about rosters and how to build it around and all that sort of stuff and compare the roster to Edmonton, and I think there are a lot of things you can do to, to round out your team and make your team better with smart management. But ultimately, you got to have those difference-making players, man. Yeah. And if you're moving JT, you have to find an avenue for one of those players to arrive one way or another because that's the game. When I look at all the teams in the postseason right now, and Colorado's insane. Look at the depth, right? They're, they might win the Stanley Cup. But it all comes down to superstar players. They're not. I mean, I don't care how much depth Colorado has. They're not sniffing the cup if yeah. Kale McCarr is not playing 28 minutes a game in the postseason and dominating. No, and, and putting up like a casual five-point night in a closeout yeah. game last night. I mean, you look at who who keyed the comeback for the Colorado Avalanche. I know it was Lekkanen who scores the winner eventually, but, I mean, really, it was Kale McCarr and Nathan McKinnon, right? Like, the, the play that Nathan McKinnon made with speed to score that the crucial goal in the third period and just Kale McCarr all night, it was those guys, those two 
absolute superstars, you know, top five players uh, in the NHL that really carry them, that really, when, when they were down, and, and look, they were still up 3 nothing in the series, right? But when they were down in the third period, it was those guys who stepped up and got the job done. Yeah, no, they did in, in a massive, massive way. All right, we mentioned we're going to talk about some coaching. We'll talk about that coming up with Frank Saravalli, with the latest on Bruce Cassidy, the coaching carousel. And coming up uh, in the next hour, we'll discuss a little bit about where we think some of these coaches may land and what that may do for the coaching market next year and how that may impact your Vancouver Canucks. It's a conversation you don't want to miss. We'll get to that coming up a bit later. But it is time to take a look at the BCLC Play Now Sports betting lines and bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Well, we saw the Tampa Bay, uh, we saw um, the Colorado Avalanche dispatch the Edmonton Oilers last night. So that series is over. However, the Rangers and the Tampa Bay Lightning are guaranteed to play at least two more games with the Tampa Bay Lightning having a 2-1 series lead. Game four in Tampa is coming up a bit later tonight. And when we start looking at the betting lines for this game, the Tampa Bay Lightning, huge, huge favorites on the money line, 1.54, whereas the Rangers are coming in at 2.55 on the money line. Do you see any uh, interest there for your betting uh, pleasure, Jamie? Because... You're not getting any value betting on Tampa. Yeah. Do you feel good about the Rangers' chances? I, look, I would pick Tampa to win this game, but in terms of betting value, I guess when the if you're if you're getting that kind of value on a team that has Igor Shosturkin in net, you know you don't hate that, right? Because there's always a chance that he's going to steal a game for the New York Rangers. So even though just straight up, I, I do kind of like Tampa to win tonight. I like Tampa to win the series as well on an individual game basis. If the value is right, I can see you know saying. Hey, I'm I'm going to back Igor Shesterkin because I know what he can do. Yeah, I mean that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I, I'm I'm not betting against Tampa at this stage. I'll worry about Tampa when they lose a game at home, and that yeah. hasn't happened. They came close in Game Three, but ultimately they found a way to to pull that one out and now made it a two-one series. If you look at say how many games this series might go. Five games, if you predict a five-game series, it's 5-1 to one odds. A six-game series, 2.4, and a seven-game series, 2.2. I'm not sure anybody's really picking five games. No. Uh, five games would be extremely aggressive. I don't see five games, but six being even less than seven, I kind of like. Like, would it shock you if Tampa just rattles off four in a row here, right? It wouldn't surprise me at all. So I, I kind of like the, the series to go six games there. It's funny because you look at the odds. The odds of the Rangers winning this series in uh, six games is 4.9. Them winning in seven games is 4.3. The Lightning winning in six games. So that that means they yep. win four in a row. They're going to win three more games in a row is 4.5. Lightning winning in seven games is four. So already, despite the Lightning being down in this series, they're still favored to win. That's actually incredible. Series. And they are, the, you can, they are more favored to win in six than the Rangers yes. are. And the Rangers <laughs> already have two games. That's an incredible sign of respect for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And it's deserved. I get it. I completely understand it. It shows you how big that victory was in Game 3. I mean, yeah. We're not having the discussion if they don't find a way to win that game. But yeah, exciting stuff. We'll, we'll delve into more of that and the anytime goals and some of the cons, my thoughts. That's coming up a bit later when we check in on the BCLC odds. But coming up next, it is our weekly insider from Daily Faceoff, Frank Valley. He's coming up next on the home of your Canucks, Sportsnet 650.
Sportsnet 650's Canuck Central is presented by your local Grip Auto and Tire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Satyar Shaw with Jamie Dodd. We're going to be joined by Frank Valley, a weekly insider from Daily Faceoff, to go through everything happening around the National Hockey League, the coaching carousel, the Emerson Oilers being out. What does that mean? And, of course, getting a weekly check-in on what's happening with your Vancouver Canucks, who have made a minor move today, signing 22-year-old Swedish free agent center Niels Amund to an entry-level contract. So we'll see how he fits into the organization and what the plan is for him as we hear more from the team as time goes on. But obviously, the, the kind of news that shook the world yesterday, or the hockey world, I should say, to not be overly dramatic here, <laughs> uh, was Bruce Cassidy being let go as Boston Bruins head coach. And, you know, I listened to Fluto Shinwaza, who was on, man, I just completely butchered the poor man's name. But anyways, he, he was coming up, he was on uh, the People Show, uh, Fluto, and he talked about the situation with the Boston Bruins and what they might be looking to do with David Pasternak. And also, one of the reasons why they moved on from Bruce Cassidy. Now, on the Cassidy front, does it seem like the players really wanted him gone? Does that kind of seem like to be the early kind of reporting we're getting from that situation, Jamie? Yeah, it sounds like it was less about the results that happened on the ice and maybe more about the relationships behind the scenes that we didn't see. Because from a results perspective, it was really hard to wrap your head around why they would choose to make this move at this time. Yeah, no doubt about that. So let's bring in uh, Frank Valley into the conversation, daily face-off NHL insider, to dig into this. Uh, thanks, as always, to jo- for joining us here, Frank. And on the Bruce Cassidy front, is it fair to say that after the team talked to its players, it kind of they kind of figure that it's going to be untenable in the future, that they're trying to get ahead of this here? Yeah, I think it was pretty clear to Don Sweeney and to their president of hockey ops and Cam Neely, the path that they needed to go down, even if it might be somewhat unpopular, at least on the outside. When you have a coach like Bruce Cassidy, as talented as he is, when he drives as hard as he does at players, I think that becomes problematic over over a period of six years. Um, You can only do that for so long, I think. And I think the best coaches today find a way to balance that out. And not to say that he was um, a total hard arse, you know, all the time. But I think it's some of the the comments that and commentary that would come with it, some sarcasm. Uh, and, and it wasn't just directed at younger players. Like, no one was safe from that. It also included the vets. And I think that just wears on players, you know, to see some of the reaction on social media. Now it's like, Hey, David Krejci, come on back. You know, what happens now with Jake DeBrusque and his trade request that was in place, clearly some friction there between DeBrusque and Cassidy, you know, maybe this just changes the outlook and, and view of things for some of the players that are there. And, and someone including a Patrice Bergeron who has a pretty important decision to make this summer. And it's interesting now, Frank, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of big name, well-qualified coaches out there on the market. Obviously, Barry Trotz at the top of the list. But when we're kind of trying to think of which direction the Bruins might go, you know, I look at some of the other coaches, not necessarily Trotz, but a guy like Pete DeBoer. Maybe he has a bit of a similar reputation with how he can be with players as Bruce Cassidy does. Maybe you could put John Tortorella in that mix as well. Is there an obvious candidate or maybe a couple of candidates you look at that would 
makes sense for a kind of new direction and a different approach for the Bruins as opposed to what they were getting from Cassidy? I mean, the list is long. Like the the number of qualified candidates that are out there, I don't know that we've ever seen a coaching offseason quite like this one mm-hmm. in terms of the experience and success that some of these coaches have had. Um, and not to say that they won't go down that path, but I want to give you one name to focus in on that I think really impressed Don Sweeney and Cam Neely, I think it was last summer, Nate Lehman from Providence College, who is also the um, Team USA coach at World Juniors and had had success there. He's a rising star. Um, A lot of people view him as someone that would be ready to step behind an NHL bench immediately. He, you know, was wowed by, I think, some opportunities at Boston University and Boston College. He's got a a sweet lifelong gig at Providence if he wants to stay. But I think there was a flirtation process that existed there between the Bruins and Nate Lehman last summer to go in and coach the Providence AHL team. And ultimately they weren't able to, you know, entice him enough to leave school. But I think if there was another opportunity that rolled around potentially this summer that they were impressed with him enough that I think he's going to be on their short list of candidates. So not to say that some of those other veteran coaches with experience won't be in the mix, because I think some of them will. I think they're ready and willing to do something a little bit different. And and I think Lehman would check a lot of those boxes. And in addition to that, you know, it was interesting to hear Don Sweeney in his press conference this morning mention the idea of a rebuild. Like, they may have a forced sort of one-year retool here, with the surgeries that have already taken place, you know, double hip surgery for Brad Marchand out until early December, uh, the significant surgery for Charlie McAvoy, same thing, late November, early December. How many teams, you know, the first two months of the season, October and November, sunk the Canucks season this last year. There's a chance the the Bruins could be in the same spot and out of the playoff chase, especially in that ridiculous division, by early December to the point where, you know, are they going to potentially be in the mix for Connor Bedard? Who knows? It could be a weird and wild year, and especially if Patrice Bergeron doesn't come back. Well, and I think the biggest the biggest decision roster wise would be on David Pasternak then. And I mean, it's easy to say you want to keep him, but what are they looking at contract wise, and does it make sense for them to keep him? I mean, I, I'd imagine they would because he's 26 and one of the best scorers in the league, but. Is that something that could get done or will get done, you think? I mean, I'd imagine it would. I I seem to see some reporting out there, you know, kind of today suggesting, hey, like maybe this is someone that they investigate moving. That would be a surprise to me. Um, It's so hard to find gifted goal scorers like Pasternak, like, you know, 48 goals two years ago, tying for that, uh, for that in that in that rocket race, and then 40 goals this year. I think the issue with Pasternak has been he sort of seems to be mercurial, right? Like he's hot and cold. He he's either totally on or totally off, and I think um, that's tough for the Bruins to manage. Um, they, I think it's, you know, in some ways it's been bothersome that like, hey, why can't we get the consistent play and production from him? Um, 
and he's played on such a value contract that there's no question now, sort of like Nathan McKinnon eventually coming off of his deal, they're going to want to get paid in a big way. And it doesn't work that way to, you know, to make up all the money that you lost in the meantime on the market. But there's certainly going to be an effort to get closer to that. And Frank, looking at the the kind of coaching carousel in general in the NHL, as you said, there are just so many established, well-known, successful coaches on the market. And then you get into, you know, as you mentioned, the Nate Lehman connection with Boston and other coaches outside of the NHL that teams might be interested in. You know, and, and I'm curious, the the reporting um, from about the Bruins and Cassidy and, you know, a lot of it being about how he related to the players, is that the type of thing that teams are going to start considering a lot more now when they look at who they're going to hire to be their next coach is the ability of the coach to really forge those relationships and be more of a, uh, I don't want to say a player's coach, but somebody who can manage those relationships beyond just, you know, get it wearing your, out your welcome in, you know, three or four years time. I, I'd like to say yes, but like how many, like at some point I would think, you know, when you look at it, John Tortorella is going to get a job again. And not to say that the torts that we see in press conferences and media, the gruff person is is necessarily who he is behind the scenes. I don't think there's any doubt that he cares about his players. I just think the shelf life for him is so short that it doesn't really matter who or where you are. It's three years and out, whatever team you're with. And in, in some ways... Peter Laviolette in Washington is the same thing. And and we see, you know, if Mike Babcock gets a job again, like there is an ability for some of these hard driving coaches and not to say that it's right or wrong. Like I'm not getting into any sort of the, the social debate about, you know, how coaches treat players. What I'm saying is because the shelf life is so short, you almost know going in ahead of time that um, you're going to run into an issue eventually. And I think, you know, maybe that's not the way that it should be. Maybe there should be more of a, a, you can push, but there also needs to be a pull as well. And I think that's part of the calculus now for like management and groups and staffs that understand. Um, but I think there's still enough of the sort of old school thought process that, I mean, these guys continue to get jobs. So it doesn't seem like it's changing maybe, maybe as rapidly as we think. Well, and that's why you kind of mentioned Nate Lehman being a potential candidate that could get the Boston job, and that would be the second new coach, Lane Lambert, who got a job with the New York Islanders, of course. And in, during the time when you mentioned maybe uh, the more most star-studded availability of NHL coaches as we've seen, but we're not seeing a ton of new guys get opportunities. And I wonder if that actually is an advantage to a team like, say, Vancouver, who, who obviously is waiting to see what happens with Boudreaux after next season, because I would guess if Vancouver goes to hire a new coach down the road I'm not sure they're going to go hire you know somebody who's been a head coach before one of these big names based on their MO I could see them being interested in that market of the next wave of coaches and not a lot of those guys are getting opportunities right now yeah and I I mean I I kind of am way more interested in finding the next guy yeah rather than the guy who that's been there a few times already um you know when you look at the guys that have been in the mix previously, um, you know, it, it's not to say, and, and none of them, their track record speaks for itself. Like none of them have done a bad job or doesn't, you know, indicate that you shouldn't hire them again or anything like that. I just like, you know, when I look at someone like Jay Woodcroft, for instance, and the job that he did in 
Edmonton this year, someone that is a, you know, has been around a long time since 2006, started as a video coach in Detroit, then went with Todd McClellan on a number of different runs. And when McClellan and Edmonton were separating and going their separate ways, he said, you know what, I want to try and become a head coach in this league and goes down to the AHL for five years and all of a sudden is ready to come back up and be a full-time NHL head coach. And he's really good at it. He's ready. He's done the work. He's put the time in. He's honed his craft. Like, there are plenty of people like that out there, I think, that are deserving of opportunities to see if you can find the next top upper echelon coach and, and guide him throughout your organization along the way. And just looking at this year's coaching market, you know, I, I think a lot of people are waiting to see what happens with Barry Trotz, and then that might have kind of set the dominoes in motion to see some of the other vacancies get filled. Do you have a sense of maybe where Barry Trotz is leaning, or at least when a deci- we might see a decision from Trotz? I think a lot of teams would like to know that info and intel. I certainly don't have it. With the number of teams that are interested um, he's really doing his due diligence and taking his time because there's a family situation that's involved. Um, you know, his son, I believe, has special needs and has, um, is, I think, a senior in high school or about to graduate high school. And so they want to be in a spot that really fits their lifestyle. And I think there's a whole calculus that goes into that. And the other part of it is opportunity for success, it's also partly financial based because there are so many teams interested. Some people have been, you know, talking behind the scenes that Barry Trotz may be getting upwards of six, seven million dollars a year wherever he lands. And then there's the other part of it where he he's a head coach and a really talented one, the only guy in the NHL to consecutively be behind the bench since nineteen ninety eight. That at some point the head coaching part is going to wear off and he's going to want to transition to management. How can he structure a contract and find an organization that believes in him as a hockey guy to then when the time is right, step from behind the bench, right into a front office role. What does that look like? What, what are the expectations? How honestly are they going to lean on him and include his opinion? All those things are are all part of the process for Barry Trotz in terms of who he's talking to and where he might land. Well, uh, we know the Edmonton Oilers are probably not changing Jay Woodcroft. He's probably getting an extension after helping the team get to the conference final. Well, they got swept by the Colorado Avalanche, but obviously it's still a success this year. When you look at what the expectations were, how the year got off to a bad start, and they had to fire Tippett and all that sort of stuff. But the question does kind of remain and looms large. Do they have enough cap space and the pieces to make the necessary changes to put this team over the top? And should people have confidence in Ken Holland getting that done this offseason? So in the Pacific Division, in some ways, it's the race for salary cap flexibility. You've got the Canucks. You've got the Golden Knights. You've got the Oilers that are all trying to do different things to free up enough cap space to really make a difference this summer. The Canucks we've talked about, Vegas we've talked about, they're also over the cap. The Oilers have the opportunity to be creative here, maybe use a buyout, maybe make a trade for one of your defensemen on the back end that that makes a, a decent amount of money, and clear up enough to try and make a run at keeping Evander Kane 
and then also getting help on the back end and, and in net. What happens with Mike Smith? His cap hit next season is $2.2 million. If he decides to retire and step away at the age of 40, uh, I'm told he was very emotional after game four last night, understandably. And does he come back for another year? Does he go on LTIR? You know, with the injuries that he sustained this year, there's lots of questions in terms of their goaltending. So goaltending, filling out their back end, and then what happens with Evander Kane up front in what seemed to be a tailor-made fit. Do you have any sense, it's such a difficult and interesting situation with Evander Kane, given how well he did play, but also all of the baggage that comes along with it. Do you have any sense of what a contract extension for Evander Kane, either in Edmonton or elsewhere around the league, could end up looking like? I don't, but I was having this debate today with some agents as I put out my top 50 free agents list. You know, some people turned a side eye towards Kane being that close to the top of the list. I think I had him in the sixth spot. The story uh, we posted this morning on dailyfaceoff.com, the full list of the top 50s up there. And it was, a re- first off, really interesting list to work through uh, just with some managers, agents, different front office people to try and get the order right. And at the end of the day, when you have Kane, who scored 35 goals in 58 games as an Oiler, someone is going to be willing to pay somewhere, I would think. And my guess is that that contract looks something like three years times seven million, four years, seven million, if someone's willing to go that far. There's never been any question at all about Evander Kane, the hockey player. It's always been about Evander Kane, the person, and Evander Kane, the teammate. He's worn out his welcome in a number of different spots. He's also shown the ability to be a chameleon and adjust to his surroundings in you know, at the very beginning of his tenure in San Jose, remember how his teammates and everyone were raving about him. And then I didn't really hear anything negative from his stay in Edmonton. So it seems like he was on uh, the right path. And what does that mean for his future? My guess is, you know, of course, wanting to win and and a nice city to play in are going to be important factors. But when you've got that type of off-ice history and bankruptcy, like my guess is you're trying to also maximize your earnings. So I don't know that he can take a discount to stay anywhere. He needs to take the most money available. Well, I mean, that's the biggest situation with him, and we'll see what happens with um, him and the and the arbitrator trying to rule on uh, the termination of his contract and what kind of worms that may open up. Now, Frank, before we let you go, too, I mean, we, we always have to ask you if anything is percolating on the Vancouver Canucks front. And you know, everything I can gather, it's pretty quiet. Now, do you think that mm-hmm. it being quiet is necessarily is, is necessarily a bad thing when it comes to agreeing to terms, or do you just think it's just one of those kind of you know, quiet times before things really start picking up once the cup final comes and goes? No, I think it's the quiet before the storm. I think they've done a lot of their homework. I think they understand some of the parameters that they'd like to work in contractually. Um, I think they've also used this time to get a feel from some of the agents involved in the process as to just in general terms, what are we talking about here? What might it take to get some of these things done? And they're sizing all that up with, the need to create that cap flexibility that we were referencing. You know, they probably got a checklist. I know that the Arizona Coyotes have called offering the ability to take on uh, some contracts that the Canucks aren't wild about. 
how much are the Canucks willing to pay to offload things like that? Um, my answer or thought process would probably be not very willing. Um, but that's going to determine the route that they go this summer. In addition to the tenor of those talks with guys like JT Miller and Besser and Horvat and go down the list, they've got a lot to accomplish and they're get they're in the process right now of getting their ducks in a row and continuing to work on some other off ice um, organizational structure things that they wanted to get in place. Like you've seen the changes to the development staff. You've seen the changes to the assistant coaches. Um, now at some point you'll see the video coach and, and those other things that they're trying to get in order. Great stuff as always, Frank. We appreciate your time and we look forward to chatting with you coming up uh, next week. And we'll also talk about a new addition to DFO team, uh, Chris Faber too. We'll have some fun with that coming up next week. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds good, guys. Have a good one. You got it. Uh, that is Frank Saravalli, our weekly insider, courtesy of Daily Faceoff. And it was interesting what he kind of mentioned there on uh, at least the Arizona Coyotes yeah. have been a team that have called and said, hey, we'll take some bad money. If you're trying to offload some money, we'll take it. But obviously what they want in return is prospects slash draft capital, potentially. Two things the Canucks are very short on. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you'd love to explore that. But, I mean, when, when we look at what the Canucks have, I mean, they don't have their second-round pick this year. They have an extra pick next year, and that's an extra fourth-round pick, and that's the pick they got um, for uh, Tyler Maud. And even that year, they don't have a seventh-round pick. So they're still pick neutral. They have seven picks, but they have two fourth, no seventh-round pick next season. There isn't a lot of excess here. So – is this team willing, do you think, at all to move a second or a third? Because I don't see it. I mean, you're well, not moving a first, and I'm not see, I don't see how you move a second or a third to clear money. And you really you just look at the contracts that they could be interested in moving, and there's not that many that you really should even have to attach an asset, you wouldn't think, right? Like, obviously, if you're talking about Horvat, Miller, Garland, Besser, any of those guys, you're not giving up an asset. You're you're getting assets back to trade those contracts if you go down that route. You know, even a player like Tyler Myers, does he, pro- he probably has positive value, right? I, I don't know that you would have to attach a pick, certainly not a second or something like that, to move the Tyler Myers deal at this point. And maybe you have to take back a little salary in return or something like that, or you retain a little, but it doesn't strike me as a deal that you would be adding draft picks and just strictly moving as a cap dump to get off of your books. I mean, about the only guy I look at in that position is is maybe Jason Dickinson, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, Jason Dickinson, smaller salary anyway, only at 2.65. Would they explore a buyout? Would there be something else they can work on? So I don't know. I, I don't necessarily see just the kind of pure cap dump trade, even with the Arizona, Arizona Coyotes, where you're giving up a bad contract and attaching a pitch uh, a pick to it to get it off your books. I think there's other kind of more creative ways the Canucks can go about doing it. Well, the only two players I see as guys you can potentially trade and not attach much, if anything, to would be Tyler Myers and Tanner Pearson because both those players can become trade assets for the Arizona Coyotes a year from now. All you're doing is holding on to them for one year, and both when they become UFA or one year from UFA expiring deals – 
I mean, you can get you can get a decent value from Myers, especially if he retains salary in the last year of his contract. Let's say Vancouver retains a million and they have uh, Myers for five in the final year of his deal, two point five million from Myers probably gets you a second and something. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's a you know, right hand defenseman who have experience can play top four minutes. They have value in a year's time. That's a trade asset. Same thing with Tanner Pearson. Even now he's a trade asset potentially, but maybe you just take him on and then in a year's time you get a second and a prospect for him. Yeah. If he plays well, maybe even more. Like so, so that's kind of how you have to look at it. But same thing goes for Vancouver. If you're trading Pearson or Myers and you're not getting anything back in return, why are you doing that to forego the potential pick value in a year's time to move those guys unless you have something you're spending that money on that making your team that makes your team better? Well, so to me it all kind of comes back to if you're getting off this type of money and you're foregoing them being potential trade assets for you in a year, what's the reason you're doing so? Yeah, and why would you pay an extra asset to do that, right? Like yeah. those, they're not the kind of awful, just pure dead money contracts that you have to give up a really good asset to move. They're, they just don't fit that because, you know, you're talking about next year's deadline, but what if even this year's deadline for a player like yeah. Tyler Myers, right? Where, okay, you get two, two playoff runs with him, you retain a little bit of salary. It's very easy to imagine there being a market for that player. I don't think it makes a lot of sense to attach draft picks, especially as you said, when you don't have a surplus of draft picks to begin with. No, exactly. So, I mean, th- that's kind of the way I see it for Vancouver's side of things. Um, you know, this one, this unsigned text says, Jamie, I think the Coyotes could take Pullman or Furlan's contract, too. I mean, uh, I think the, the Furlan contract, because it's LTIR, maybe, but at the same time, it kind of comes down to what is the Canucks impetus to move Furland well, and give something up. I think so. the Furland would be more likely to go to a team that's trying to spend to the cap and wants to use that LTIR space, right? Like a contending team would be more yeah. likely to move. There's not really a lot of incentive for the Arizona Coyotes to take on the Michael Furland deal. The Tucker Pullman one is fair. That's a fair shout. One that, one that I didn't list and then potentially uh, yeah. you could be interested in. But, you know, I also think that, at 2.5 for Tucker Pullman, it's, you're probably better off served bringing him back and seeing if he can fill a role for your team. But you're right. that's the, That would be kind of the other one that fits into that category of potential contracts. Yeah, potentially. But I don't see the Canucks wanting to attach anything to get rid of those contracts. But interesting discussion, of course. Keep getting your thoughts in to our text inbox, like Rager saying, move OEL's contract to Arizona and throw Connor Garland into the deal as <laughs> that was, well. That yeah. was the first thought that came to my mind, too. Oh, they, they want to take on a bad salary? Uh, how about OEL? <laughs> yeah, I was kind of waiting for that one. All right, great, great stuff. We look forward to interacting with you in the next hour because we have... Our man, Cam Robinson, coming up. Uh, We'll talk all things NHL prospects as we continue right here on Canuck Central.